microphone. He said, uh-oh, he forgot something. I do know one thing. i got to get a bigger stand. <laughs> That's doing the work. One of the things we do is I challenge you to some a commitment statement every Sunday. So if you have a Bible, hold it up. If you don't, if you have a phone that has a Bible on it, hold it up. That'll work. But uh, you, you can share with us. And we say it like this. I'm a child of God. I have in my hand the powerful Word of God. can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. And then we have a prayer together. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now reach over there and hug your neighbor and let them know that you love them and appreciate them. And if you're sitting close, if you're by yourself, well, hug yourself. That'd be good. Okay. <clears throat> I still think this is a little bit loud, Jeff. So, um, <clears throat> hopefully I won't start coughing on you. <laughs> Too bad. But it's good to have you. Kathy, you want to introduce your, your uh, brother and his wife? Glad you're here. Amen. Glad you're here. Paul is the, where they would go every summer to fish. And Don would come back grinning because he finally caught a fish. So it was awesome. But uh, I'm sure Paul put it on his hook and, hey, your thing's, oh, well, okay. I'm sorry. That's the way I fish. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we're so glad you're here. And there's others visiting today, and we're glad you're with us today and hope that you find the warmth of God in this place. Uh, one of the things that we need to be is Ephesians 4 church. Ephesians 4, the latter part of that chapter says, Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but such words that are good for edification, for the building up of the moment, lifting up the body of Christ. May all of our words be gracious, merciful, and encouraging. Amen? So we, we want to be that kind of church. So uh, hopefully if you visited today, and hopefully you feel welcome, and you feel... Uh, uh, you've had somebody at least come up and say hello to you. <laughs> so, because that's really important to us here at the church. All righty. Uh, we had a great leaders planning session because whenever, whenever you look at the nuts and bolts of a church, it takes money to, to run a church. Amen. Now, at the end of the year, we, we promoted in our bulletin that we, were, we exceeded our budget need. When we did, you were amazing all last year. But we have expenditures also <laughs> and had quite a few in December. So um, some bills came due on the credit card and those types of things. So I just kind of chipped into it, and uh, that's all right because we know that God is in control here. And that's what I told the men. I said, hey, this is the time to rejoice because we had a little money in the bank. <laughs> Remember a time in your life growing as a, when you first got married, it was great to get through it all, and you still had a couple of dollars in there? Amen. Yeah, instead of looking at it and it's all red, oh, amen. So, you know, praise God. Uh, he, didn't be, he didn't send us here to be a financial institution. He sent us here to give it away. And we do a pretty good job at that, so I'm, I'm grateful. And thank you for your continued encouragement. Some of the things that we're dreaming for uh, this next year, uh, we've got several. Uh, we want to do some painting around the church, outside especially. We want to do some landscaping. We want to do some of those things. That may be something you're interested in helping with. We're going to talk about that 
here pretty soon. We bought a new baptistry, and as you see, it's in the other room, <laughs> uh, <coughs> empty. And so we want to get this one out and put the new one in. It's going to be fun. This one will have a better heater. And so when you call me and say, Pastor, I've got somebody ready to be baptized, I won't take set, uh, 10 hours. <laughs> I, can't, I won't have to say to you, well, bring them tomorrow. Satan might get them discouraged, and they're not even come at all. So I, I'm encouraged about the new one. It's going to just bring a new, new dimension to what we do. Uh, we, we were dreaming some dreams. In fact, one of them, we want to start doing some things that will cause the community to see who we are. And one of those is we want to do some contests. And one of those contests, and this is open to anybody, and somebody, Cindy said last night, or somebody told me last, yesterday, said, well, can women participate in this? I said, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. But the idea is we're going to have an ugly tie contest. Any of you have ugly ties at home? Some of you women have ugly ties at home. Some of you have husbands or dads that have ugly ties. Okay. Anyway, we want to, on Super Bowl Sunday, that'll be the first Sunday of February, we're going to have our contest and see who has the ugliest tie, and the grand prize winner will receive an Apple iPod. So we want you to be, be ready for that. And you might have people, hey, man, you need to start coming to church. And on the 6th, bring an ugly tie. <laughs> okay. And uh, wear it. Back uh, years ago, I had a Tweety Bird tie. It was an ugly. It was brown and yellow Tweety Bird all over it. I liked it. <laughs> I didn't know my family didn't like it. So they took me to a steakhouse in Denver, and I think there's one in Dallas. And if you wear a tie in there, they cut it off right below the knot. And then they staple them all over the wall. So when I got in there, I realized I'm in some deep trouble. So when the waiter came up, they had this huge pair of scissors. Pulled out my tie, cut it off right under the knot, and, and then said, boys, you want to watch? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're over and they're nailing it to the wall. And so I got to sit the rest of the time with a tie knot right there. That's it. The rest of it's gone. So bring an ugly tie. Wear an ugly tie on the 6th, and uh, we'll just have a lot of fun with that. Hey, you want to cut them off? We could do that. <laughs> well, I, I probably won't cut it off, but we, you know, maybe the, the wife or the husband can cut it off. How about that? That'd be good. If we can find a pair of scissors sharp enough to cut through it, that'd be even better. All righty. Uh, and uh, at, during the announcement time, I'm going to share some other things with you because we've got some classes we're going to encourage you about. Uh, these classes will meet on their specialized classes. They'll meet on Sunday night or through the week in the evening. Uh, there's, there's some folks that I know that need these classes, and so I want to talk with them specifically and find out what nights work for them because I really want this material for them and so uh, in their life. So we want to open that up for you and come and be a part of these classes, and I'll talk more about them here at the end. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 4. We read it earlier. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Verse 7 of chapter 4 gives us the best understanding of this passage that we read this morning. And uh, I like to read it from other versions also because it helps you sometimes gain a perspective on how that verse comes, comes across. In the King James, for instance, that verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand, but ye therefore be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. In the New King James, it says it this way, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 
The Berkeley version says the end of all things is near, so be serious minded and be awake to the practice of prayer. Boy, that really kind of opens it up a little bit. If you do a literal rendering of the Greek words, it would sound something like this, or that verse in the Greek would sound something like this. Now of all things, the end has drawn near. You be sober minded, therefore, and you be sober under prayer. There are three things in verse 7 that should speak to each of us. And Peter wants to give us from this passage. The first one is understand the times in which you live. It's important to understand the times in which we live. Like verse 1, verse 7 begins with a conjunction or a connecting word which not only marks a new thought, but ties the new thought to what has been said in previous uh, verses. The word but or now followed by Peter's assertion that the end of all things is at hand will then point you back to verse 5 from verse 7, which assures us of that judgment to come. The judgment is not only for those who persecute Christians on account of their faith, but as chapter 4 and verse 17 tells us, it's also for the church. Because the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We have been playing Christian too long. It is time to be authentic and real. We're doing a study on Sunday morning with Max Lucado. Uh, I've brought Max in. He'll be here for six weeks. Isn't that awesome? Uh, it's by video, so it didn't cost us quite as much. But he's here. And it's a great study. And it's titled, Outlive Your Life. And it's an examination of that first century church. And boy, this morning's was pretty good. So don't miss any more. Meet right here in the worship area, and it's a great time. So I encourage you to come be a part of that. We also have a, a Bible study going on at 930 in the Fellowship Hall. We're doing a, a zip through the book of Deuteronomy. If we were verse to verse, we'd be in Deuteronomy at this time next year. But we're doing a zip through, grabbing the major themes and, and grabbing hold of the nuggets of truth that God wants us to learn. Great book. Great book. That's the foundational book for the Jews to learn what the principles of God were. And so we're, we're going to be studying that too. So maybe one of those would, would grab you. We've got classes for kids. So like, like Kim said, if you've got to rent one, check one out, whatever you do, bring them. Wasn't that clever? I love that. But the judgment begins, needs to begin at the house of God. But he, he gives three purposes for writing this. First of all, he wants these people to be aware of end time realities. Simply put, he wants them to recognize that Jesus could return at any moment. God has set the gears in motion, and at some point, fixed in the mind of the Father alone, Jesus will return, and all that's been foretold will come to pass. Oh man, that's exciting. Live as though you're leaving here today. Woo! (laughs) That's the, that's the attitude we should have. 
The word translated near or at hand is an interesting word. It's the same word that Jesus used in Mark 1.15 when He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Understand that this word near or at hand is key to properly understanding everything that Peter's saying in our text today. Remember that the early church was expecting Jesus to return within their lifetime. And if you go back to the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 11, you'll remember what the angels said. The disciples were staring, (laughs) mouths open, as Jesus was rising out of their midst back to heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. So why are you worried? Why are you staring at that? First Thessalonians 4, Paul instructs the Christians there about the second coming. That's the passage in First Thessalonians 4 that we all go to. Especially when we talk about the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ will rise first and then those that are left will meet Him in the air. If you're a rapture person, hallelujah. I mean, I'm a big guy, but I think God's able to pull me up there. Amen? Yeah. He didn't create me this size, and I've, I've helped him. <laughs> but good news, he can handle it. Or maybe he can get all of me but my leg. I don't know. But I, I trust him. I don't know if you're a, a rapture person or not. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, he's coming. And we've got to be ready. Amen? The clear testimony of the New Testament is that the early church expected Jesus to return at any moment. And what they often failed to understand was that God's timetable is not the same as ours. If you're around somebody who's a Bible student, a Bible studier, uh, even a Bible scholar, and they tell you they have figured out when Jesus is coming back, I challenge you, run. Run from that heretic. (laughs) Because they're saying to you they know more than Jesus himself. Because when Jesus was posed the same question, He said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So you and I are never going to know the time or the day. So just don't worry about it. We get so hung up on the times and the days that we got people going to hell right around us that we had not even talked to about Jesus. We need to be about the business of going out to the highways and byways and, and, and pleading them to come to the banquet. Amen. Where's the banquet? Right here. We, start, we get around the banquet every Sunday. Amen. We've got to be right here. All faithful believers of all ages have looked forward to that day, but since the first generation of a Christian passed off the scene, there's been this growing skepticism in the minds of many whether or not Jesus is really going to return. Two major reasons people skeptically don't think He's coming back. First, because most people in our culture operate from a materialistic or a naturalistic worldview, they're unwilling to believe that there's a God who can intervene in time and space and bring this world to some cataclysmic end. Since they cannot prove God's existence in a test tube, they say He must not exist. So they go on to reason. He he who does not exist cannot be a contributing agent in human history. Their logic is faulty because while they are unwilling to recognize the overwhelming body of evidence that points to our universe being an intelligently designed place, and at the same time they cannot disprove the existence of God, 
All the creation points not only the existence of God, but His creative power and majesty are on display every day. You've gotten emails from people that show majestic pictures of this world in different places. Amen? <laughs> How in the world can you... All you got to do is just be there when a baby's born. All you got to do is when you know how the baby was formed and how it comes out, hello, and what's the first thing mamas do when that baby's born? Count how many of these are attached and how many of those are attached to that foot. Because if you've only got four, something's wrong. <laughs> Amen? But nine times out of ten, everything's there. And it's an absolute miracle that in nine months that child can be born. And then everything changes. I have a three-year-old granddaughter, smartest child. Oh, my goodness. If I was only half as smart as my three-year-old granddaughter. She, and my boys, they all watch me when I'm with her. And they just they marvel at how I treat her. And then, then I'll hear them say, muttering, well, you didn't treat us that way. <laughs> to which I quickly respond, you're right. You're right. And I've apologized to them, but not very much. Second reason people are skeptical about the return of Christ and the reason many Christians, it's the same reason many Christians while professing to believe that Christ will return, in truth, do not live as though they do truly believe it. For Christians, our problem is out of sight, out of mind. Since He has not yet returned, and so much time has passed since He promised to return, yeah, we've got this tendency to think that He's really not coming at all. Any of you? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Any of you? Maybe feel that way? Many of you, any of you don't really care? Man. Man. Man, whatever. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Whatever will be, will be. But I'm telling you, you're going to be caught off guard. And you're going to be screaming. Screaming. Why didn't somebody tell me? We've been trying to tell you. Yeah, but you didn't really tell me. You ever had anybody do that? They do something crazy and you tell them, you know, I mean, you've been telling them all along not to do it. They do it and then they get mad at you because you didn't tell them to stop it. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it, amen? That's the way it'll be on Judgment Day. You remember the story in Luke 16 of the rich man Lazarus? He was in hell looking across the gulf at Lazarus in paradise wanting him to dip his finger in the water to cool his tormented tongue in the flames of hell. Wow. <laughs> Pretty graphic, but yet there. Get a good glimpse. I love how Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 through the first part of verse 10. It says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lessons, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the, from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by, and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of godly, ungodly men. But do not let this, this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, He says. Now, we've got some pretty brazen thieves nowadays. Have you heard about them? Midday, they'll go kick the door open, come walking in to shoot people. The latest guy, you know, just a few, few weeks ago, uh, his brother's on the sofa sleeping, and he wakes up to a guy with a gun pointing straight at his head. They steal what they want to steal, and the man of the house then chases them outside. They turn and shoot him dead. I think they're, in, they're teenagers who did this. Number one, where's the parents of these children? And why don't you take that gun and pistol whip them upside the head? Amen? Oh, I'm sorry. They'd arrest the parent for child abuse. There you go. Isn't it amazing? If you whip your kids, they'll put you in jail. Boy, my boy said, hey, Dad, we didn't know about that. <laughs> I bet you did. Don't tell them everything, right? Never forget that the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a word of insight, both not only to the early Christians, but to every generation of Christians since. Telling them not to be foolish and to think that just because it hasn't happened, that it won't happen because God is still on the throne. He was and has set His plan in motion from the beginning of time and in His time, when He wills, it will come to pass. It will happen. We have to live by faith, not by sight. We should believe that Jesus will return because God said He would return. How many times have you witnessed what God said come true. Can you raise your hand on that one? There you go. There you go. So when he says the end of all things is at hand, he's saying Jesus could return at any moment. Remember, Peter has at least three reasons. First one is the proper understanding. Secondly, Peter wants to encourage those who are persecuted as a believer. Their lives were on the line. They were thrown in prison. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were killed, literally killed, for nothing more than their faith. God's timetable is God's. Governments can't change it. Individuals can't stop it. You can sure try. And many have. God's purpose throughout history can't be stopped. His will will ultimately be accomplished. God is on His throne. So whatever happens to you on this earth, remember that it's not outside of God's control. And someday, someday, He's going to make things right. Those who are evil and seem to get ahead, whoo! <laughs> Don't want to be them facing that judge. Because they're not going to have a defense lawyer with them initially. 
But if you've got the blood of Jesus covering you, you've got your defense lawyer, his name is Jesus Christ. He's with J.C. and Associates. And you're going to want him to step up and say, he's one of mine. He's one of mine. If you hear those words, then guess what else? What other words you're going to hear? The Father will say, enter in, thou good and faithful servant. Well, I don't know if he'll speak King James, but you know, <laughs> some believe he will. Enter into how you memorize verses, right? Enter in. But if he doesn't stand up for your defense, you're going to hear some words as well. Be gone from me. You don't want to hear those words. You don't want to hear those words. As I was reading the text this week, my heart raced to check and look and read about different Christians today who were... Egypt, I mentioned earlier, just a few weeks ago, they're meeting, Christians are meeting in Egypt in the church building. The gov they had been complaining to the government officials that they were being persecuted. So the government officials sent guards out to protect them. And once the service started, the guards left. I wonder if they weren't paid off by the extremists. Because as soon as they left... Here come the bombs planted at the front door. And when it blew up, 21 people died. It'd be like somebody walking in that foyer, setting down a case of bombs and walking out. And a short time later, it'd go off and none of us know it would happen. But it would, just, it would kill, literally kill people here for worshiping Jesus Christ. That was their only crime that day because they were worshipers of Jesus Christians in communist countries like China and North Korea persecuted in unspeakable ways. Muslim countries, converting to Christianity is oftentimes a capital offense. Things are not getting better, even for those of us who live in the West. And in the name of toleration, many are seeking to silence Christians from preaching the unique claims of Christ. In Canada, our brothers to the north, there's a movement afoot in Canada to say that all religious beliefs or of equal value. In our own country, there are those who would classify our preaching against sexual perversion as hate speech, and if they have their way, prosecute guys like me for just merely reading certain passages of Scripture that are clear-cut. I love how John Hagee put it. If God honored homosexuality, then He owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology for the urban renewal plan that he placed upon their country, upon their cities. They're not there anymore for those of you that are struggling. They're gone. There's no question that we are seeing the world change before our very eyes. And yet Peter will tell us in this powerful verse and in this powerful section in this chapter that God is still on the throne. Relax. Take a deep breath. But preacher, I'm losing everything. No, you're not. You haven't lost your faith. Well, they're going to kill me. <laughs> this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through my treasure. Some glad morning when this life is... You know, we sing them. You know, <laughs> as, soon, as soon as Phyllis starts playing those, we're all going, oh yeah, the head's going down, the foot's tomping. But do you ever hear someone? Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll... Well, I'll still be here working my way through. No, man, I'm out of here. 
Don't hang on to this life. Grab hold of what's coming. Amen. That's it. He's still on the throne. We still have hope. He writes to encourage distraught believers, but there's a third reason he writes. Verse 7, he wants to counsel them with respect to how they should live in light of their understanding of the times that they live in. This is not the time to give up. It's not the time to get lazy, indulgent in the ways of the Gentiles. As he has already said, they wasted too much of their lives before coming to Christ. Now is the time to make the most of your journey on earth. It ought to be the most blessed time to give and outside yourself. And it naturally leads us into the next thing that he says in this verse. Verse 7, look at it. It says, be sober. In other words, be intentional about how you use the time that God gives you. The word therefore in that passage, therefore be sober, ties the instruction about the second coming of Christ directly to the way that we're supposed to behave in the meantime. That's why we've titled the message today, Life in the Meantime. If we believe that Jesus could return at any moment, if we believe the testimony of Scripture which tells us Jesus will return when people least expect Him, then that belief should drastically impact the way we live in the meantime. This is what He is saying when He says that we should be sober. Two verbs in the original language. One is the word translated sober by the King James. The rendering of that is sound judgment in the New American Standard. The other word is watchful or be alert. Closely synonymous in that they speak to the necessity of self-control or the ability to be aware and intentional about how one lives. You see, people live one way at church on Sunday and the rest of the way, the rest of the week. Ought to be, ought to be the same. On Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock, when you're almost ready to get off from work, I should see you the same way I do at 10.30 on Sunday morning. I, I'll, I'll wait. Okay, I'll wait some more. Even more. I love prompting you guys. I need to have one of those signs that comes up and goes... Amen. <laughs> I could get, hey, I could get the puppets to help me. They'd come out of the, from the baptistry going, okay. And you'd respond to them. Never mind. Far too many people call themselves Christians, live as though they are not. Oh, true, they have a moral code that's a little better than the world around them, but it could not be said that they're living their lives to expand the kingdom of God. For all practical purposes, they are living for the same temporary goals which define the neighbors that are lost around them. What does it mean to live with sound judgment and to be alert? It speaks to both what we are intentional about doing and what we are intentional about avoiding. We are to purposefully pursue God's kingdom. And just as purposefully avoid falling back into the kind of lifestyle from which God called us out of. Peter has just told them in the first part of that chapter, 
chapter 4, that those who live according to the will of God no longer live for the fulfillment of the desires of the flesh. But yet over and over we see this admonition from Peter to abstain from sin, to be different from the rest of the world. I have to keep telling you the same stuff week in and week out because you haven't figured out that you're supposed to live a certain way. I'll wait. Very good. If it goes up, you know what that means. Okay. The reality is, is that as long as we live in this old fleshly body, guess what we're going to face? Temptation! Temptation! Cindy, yesterday we were out visiting and going around the mall, and she goes, hey, you know, it just dawned on me that we bought cheesecake when Mark was home, and we didn't ever get it out of the deep freeze. What's the first thing I did when I got home? I said, well, baby, let me help you with that. Well, I went and got that box of cheesecake. Where'd she get it from? Sam's. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Oh, it looks good. It's got different flavors in there. Well, you can't try just one flavor. Amen? Okay, I'll go halfway on that one. Okay. Yeah. Temptation. I don't know what tempts you, but Satan does. And he tries to destroy us with these temptations. That's why Peter goes on later in, that, in his book to say that the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom it may devour. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. Paul says that we are not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. And as Christians, you and I should not simply mosey through life reaching this or that which, you know, and, and reacting to this and that, whatever happens to us. We're called to be disciplined in our lives. Intentional living with the determination which says that we are going to live for Christ. You're going to spend the substance of your life furthering the kingdom of God, keeping your focus on the prize lest you get distracted and off course. They'll put you at odds with the rest of the world because they don't see it that way. Peter's counsel is this. Don't go through life in a spiritual stupor as though you were drunk. Live intentionally for Christ and deliberately avoid falling into sin and temptation. But if you're going to live out above the fray of sin and temptation of this natural world, you're going to meet and you're going to need supernatural power. Look at the last part of that verse where Peter says, Be awake to the practice of prayer. Peter has said about what he said about being sober-minded or alert and intentional about our manner of living. It ties directly into our prayer life. The sense of the original language here is that we should live properly so that we can pray powerfully. Prayer is the greatest resource available to every Christian and yet remains the most neglected discipline of the Christian life. I had somebody ask me last year, said, well, teach me how to pray. Okay? I did a whole series on prayer during the Sunday school hour. And I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was a great study. Unfortunately, the person who asked for the study only came twice. <laughs> but we still had it anyway. Let me give you four reasons why we don't aren't people to prayer. We fail to pray because of pride. We think that we've got the answers. We think we know how to do it. 
we're only inclined to call on God when things are going to get out of our control. Secondly, we fail to pray because we have a faulty view of reality. We have a tendency to view our world in physical terms rather than in spiritual terms, and we've made the mistake of separating those two. In Ephesians 6, after instructing us to put on the whole armor of God, Paul says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. How often do we fail to pray because we are walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit? third reason we fail to pray is that uh, our relationship with God is not what it should be. Prayer is at the very heart simple communication and communion with God. You can't be intimate without communication. I'll wait. <laughs> you can't do it. You just can't do it. We all have friends. We can go without weeks talking to them, can't we? And then we talk to them and it's though no time had ever passed. But the problem is, is that's not really a relationship. Relationship, I'll tell you what, guys, don't talk to your wife for weeks. We'll see how that works out for you. As Dr. Phil says. No, you're going to have to talk. And the thing about it, guys, is that women really want you just to listen. They don't want you to talk. They don't want you to fix anything. Because what do men do? To not be bothered, we're going to fix it. She comes to us and she just needs to tell us stuff. And what are we doing? We're immediately got our minds moving on how we're going to fix it. Because that's what men do. And all she wants you to do is just shut up, look at her, and listen. And occasionally throw in there and say, Unbelievable. Occasionally throw in there, oh, I'm proud of you. I'm giving away my tips here, so you know, Cindy's going to go, uh -huh, on to you now. Yeah. But you know, that's the way we are with God. We only need Him when we need Him. Fourth reason we fail to pray is because we simply lack faith. While we're told that God will hear and answer our prayers, we really don't believe it. Oh, he, he's not going to listen to my prayers, Pastor. He, nah, he's not going to listen to my prayers. Luke 18, verses 7 and 8 says this. It's a parable of the unrighteous judge. Jesus said, Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, we, uh, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find us faithful? Will He find us ready to do what He's called us to do? Will He find us in the way that He wants us to be? At the end of every message, I always ask myself, so what? As Phyllis comes to the keyboard. So what? And, and, you, and I've got to answer that question. So I've said all this, so what? You may be saying, yeah, preacher, I, I, I hear you, but... I'm not sure I know what to do with this. Well, I want to give you three things I want to challenge you with as you apply this message today. Number one, know that God's Word is true. And when you know that, start assessing everything in your life through the lens of the truth found in the Word of God. Jesus could come at any moment. Live that way. And then secondly... Truly begin to live 
use the time we have intentionally. Take an honest look at your life. Ask hard questions. For whose agenda are you living? Could it truly be said that your priority in this life is the kingdom of God and His righteousness? If not, why not? How does a 7-9 and team beat a Super Bowl champion? By a good game plan. By intentionally setting a defense to stop them. And they did it. Peyton Manning. He's going home. Be rough on him. Millions of dollars to go home too. He's going home. Because the defense couldn't stop one player from catching a ball to the, at the 10-yard line. Three seconds left in the game. They have one timeout left. They stop. you imagine the pressure on that kicker? And when he kicked it, I thought, oh, he didn't make it. It's funny how soccer kickers do that. Just curse just, just enough to go inside that, that goalpost. Wow. Begin to live intentionally. Are you aware that God will hold you accountable for what you know? And, and now that you clearly understand your life is to be lived intentionally for His kingdom, if you fail to do this, what excuse are you going to give to God? And then the third thing I want you to take away today and apply in your life, is that powerful part in that last verse of prayer. Do you want this church to grow in number? I do. Do you? If you do, will you start praying for that to happen? Will you start praying? Will you, on your connection card, begin to put names on there of people you're talking to? Guess what? To get one to come, you're going to have to talk to about 30, 40, 50 of them. That's just a sales statistic, and it's true. I think they say for every one sale, you've got to do 100 contacts. You're, oh, I don't know 100 people. At our leaders' uh, uh, session, we were talking about, and, and one of the deacons said, you know, I just don't hang around non-Christians. Well, I understand that. Don't want, don't want to be reminded of the life you used to have. I got you. I'm with you. But another thing about it is that Jesus said he compels us to go to the highways and byways of life and bring them to the banquet so you and I, we don't have an option. We've got to go. Hey, maybe at McDonald's. <laughs> Can you find any unchristians at McDonald's? I know you can't at Hugo's. I've been in there a lot. <laughs> Prayer that works like coffee breaks, where you set aside 15 minutes three times. I'm not talking about the, you know, no, that type of prayer. I'm, I'm really talking about a prayer life that defines your every move. That you're constantly in prayer. Talking to Jesus throughout the course of your everyday life in everything you do. Pray with me, would you? Father, I, I ask you so much to be in the lives of these, your people. God, I pray that during this invitation time that we truly, honestly listen. Hear the prompting of your Spirit in our heart. God, will we begin to be people of prayer? Would, would we truly embody what Peter's teaching us in this chapter, in this passage? Be sober-minded. Be ready to go. Understand that you're coming at any point. Live as though we're leaving here today. Some glad morning. When this life is over, I'll fly away. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Because I'll guarantee you, God, everything's going to be all right. I don't know what the needs are in the hearts of your people here. But you do. 
So God, would you move in them? In Jesus' name, amen.